Welcome to the Malin Baker podcast for changemakers. You're listening to the audio version of the Malin Baker show. The full video version has additional visuals that may be informative and entertaining. If you want to see that, head on over to the YouTube channel. Boris Johnson launches his 10-point plan for the Green Industrial Revolution. Question marks get raised over whether COVID-19 actually started in China, even as protests against lockdown continue. And we ask the question whether there's any answer now to our deeply polarised society. My name's Malin Baker. This is The Malin Baker Show. Just in case you thought that giving all that money away to keep people staying at home watching Netflix, that that had somehow exhausted the magic money tree, well, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been announcing more and more spending this week. Yesterday, it was the Defence Review, where he announced that post-Brexit Britain would be stepping up to its independent role in the world again by building up its defences. Newfangled stuff like drones and cyber warfare, along with old favourites like battleships. But before that, it was the turn of Boris's 10-point plan for the Green Industrial Revolution, a £12 billion plan to project the UK as a leader in green technology and finance. As I've said before, this is what's going to drive the progress in this area now. Most of the decision makers of the world have accepted that it is moving towards the post-carbon energy mix. And it's a question of which countries can benefit from being the suppliers of all of those new technologies. Everyone says it's going to be them. And this is Boris Johnson's pitch on behalf of the UK. So, what's the substance? Virtually all the press coverage focused on one single commitment, which is bringing forward the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars to 2030. Well, banning stuff is easy, but the implications are more complicated. I mean, you can't ban petrol if the alternatives aren't yet in place. So the government has committed £1.3 billion to accelerate the rollout of the electric vehicle charging infrastructure. There will also be £582 million in grants to encourage people to trade in their cars for electric models. A big question is whether the motor manufacturers will keep up with the implied speed of that transition and whether the large number of people who don't have the ability to charge their car at their home, those who have to park in the street for instance, will have a practical solution. All of that remains to be seen. Personally, I thought the original timetable was stretching. I see the government promising world-beating track-and-trace apps and then completely failing to deliver, and I have to wonder how well thought through this one is. Norway is currently the only country which has a tighter planned timetable, since it aims to ban the sale of new petrol cars by 2025. Of course, Norway has a population of just under 5.5 million, rather than over 60 million in the UK. So the logistical challenge, difficult as I'm sure it is, is nevertheless on a completely different level. There was something of a flurry when it was suggested that the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is considering charging motorists to use the roads to make up the £40 billion tax shortfall there will be when people are no longer buying petrol, because petrol is heavily taxed. This caused a storm, with people saying how unfair this would be for people in rural areas who have to drive, which is what they always say, but it's really pretty much a like-for-like tax. If you currently buy petrol, then you're already paying a tax based on the amount of driving that you do. The question is, how would you phase it in so as not to double charge those who are still on petrol vehicles? 
So then other aspects of Boris's plan. It included a fund of half a billion pounds to help develop large and small modular nuclear power plants. Seems almost certain now that it will approve a new major plant at Sizewell in Suffolk and work with Rolls-Royce to develop the smaller modular nuclear plants. The environmentalists wailed, of course, because they, even though they say that climate change is the biggest crisis facing the human race, they're never prepared to contemplate even the slightest change to their pre-existing preferences, even though you can't run the entire grid off wind turbines. Then there's hydrogen. The government's putting in £500 million for scaling up hydrogen production capacity to 5 gigawatts by 2030. Now, if you watched my video on hydrogen a couple of weeks ago, you'll be assuming that most of that will be for industry, maybe some heavy vehicles and public transport. Interestingly, the government seems to be toying with the idea of hydrogen as a replacement for gas in home heating and cooking. The government wants to run trials with a hydrogen village by 2025 and a hydrogen town by 2030, which is interesting. I think they're attracted to that on the basis it would enable existing gas-fed towns to switch using the existing energy supply infrastructure. Whereas if all homes are going to be switched to electric-powered heat pumps, then there's an expensive process of conversion that needs to be done upon millions of millions of homes. There are real practical problems in pursuing hydrogen that way. Given how much energy gets lost in the conversion, you'd actually need an energy producing infrastructure significantly larger to generate the hydrogen. Still, I suppose the whole point of doing trials is you work out the practicalities and the obstacles. And it's worth noting that the industry welcomed the move, so they clearly do see a way forward. And so do others. You know, Germany committed 7 billion euros for its own hydrogen plans. Boris's plan also commits 1 billion pounds to carbon capture and storage, and it commits a billion for funding energy efficiency schemes, and to install 600,000 heat pumps a year, every year by 2028. If I tell you that last year just 30,000 were fitted, you'll see that's a pretty major expansion. Ultimately, if you're going to get to net zero, you're going to be replacing 25 million gas boilers in people's homes, which is, you know, huge. Offshore wind is to be quadrupled by 2030, providing 40 gigawatts enough to power every UK home, so long as, you know, so long as the wind's blowing. The trick is managing the introduction of all that variable power into the grid, which is kind of a boring bit nobody ever talks about. But if we get California-style blackouts at any point, it'll be because they didn't manage that part properly. Since the plan was launched, various people said they don't think £12 billion is a large enough sum of money, particularly since only £4 billion of that was new money. People really do believe that magic money tree just goes on and on. But the point is that when it comes to this area, the development of green technologies, is that it isn't just about what the government itself spends. The government's strategic investments here are supposed to encourage the private sector to invest big, because once the momentum picks up, they will be the primary beneficiaries after all. That's the market in action. How much does the country care about this stuff? In the middle of economic calamity, lockdown and pandemics? Well, more than you might think, apparently. 88% of people who were in the so-called red wall of traditionally Labour voting areas but instead voted for Brexit Boris were concerned about the environment and 60% wanted the party they voted for in the last election to do more on the topic. 
70% have taken the message that cutting carbon is an opportunity to create jobs, and 82% particularly see jobs ahead in renewable energy, battery manufacture and electric cars. Boris Johnson was clear when he launched the plan to stress that investing in these technologies was about job creation and the government was specifically targeting those new jobs at those red wall areas that most need the economic boost. Will it be enough? Well, it partly depends just how bad people's lives get over the coming few months as we trash the economy in the name of COVID-19. Now, in just a moment, we'll do a roundup of the week's other interesting news. But first... Here's a question for you. Why do climate scientists lose debates? Sometimes people say we need more debates on the science of climate change so people can make up their minds. But these sorts of debates are not where science gets settled. They're entertainment. The true believers on each side of a debate are not remotely going to change their mind and all they want is for their man to put in a barnstorming performance and destroy the competition. And usually that's what they'll see because they that's what they want to see. So anyway, who cares? Well, it's not just about the committed. You might well care, you should care, about how such things play out with a neutral audience. It's always interesting to see how many votes go each way before the debate and then how they go again afterwards. Does that tell you which argument's factually correct? No, it tells you which of the performers of the debate was the most persuasive to the non-committed. Now, climate scientists these days avoid debating people on the other side. You might wonder why. Well, there's this debate from 2010 that might give a clue, and it was climate scientists versus some well-known sceptics, and the climate scientists lost the debate, unambiguously lost it. Having watched it, I have thoughts about why they lost, about why they would probably lose again in the future. I think you'll find it really interesting. If you agree that might be the sort of thing you would find interesting, then join me for that video being launched on this channel at 7pm UK time, Monday next week, the 23rd of November. Why climate scientists lose debates. Next week, see you then. A new study suggests that COVID-19 was circulating in Italy as early as last September. Milan's National Cancer Institute took nearly a thousand blood samples from smokers across Italy for a cancer screening programme. Testing the samples for COVID antibodies came up positive with 23 out of 162 samples that were taken September last year. To check for test reliability, tests were also carried out on earlier blood samples, none of which showed evidence of antibodies. It's worth noting that Northern Italy saw a boom in pneumonia patients last November, which might have been an early COVID outbreak. We've got no way of knowing. China, which is a bit fed up of President Trump calling COVID the China virus, was quick to argue that this showed the virus might well not have originated in Wuhan after all. And that may well be true, although it doesn't exclude the possibility either. Since China delayed announcing the outbreak and has not been testing earlier samples, and you have to suspect it probably wouldn't disclose even if it had been, then we don't know if it actually started there. There are strong links between China and North Italy, so this new information doesn't necessarily count anything out at all. 
In Europe, the second wave is continuing with death rates up, but most places still below the rates of the first wave. There seems to be some evidence again that the places that got hit hard the first time are less strongly hit this time and vice versa. So in the UK, for instance, London was the worst hit in the first wave. Second time around seems to be faring a lot better. This week, the Office for National Statistics showed 952 all-cause deaths in London, which is in line still with the average for the past five years. Other regions of the UK have now begun to register higher than usual deaths. So, for instance, 1,900 deaths in the northwest were around 500 higher than the average for the time of year. The implication, of course, is that London has developed some degree of herd immunity. Enough to slow it down, not enough to stop it altogether. That logic doesn't do any favours for Switzerland. Switzerland has said its ICUs across the country are now saturated. More beds have been added with the support of the Swiss military. Switzerland was relatively lightly touched by COVID-19 in the first European wave, hence it having built up little defence against it in the form of antibodies. Elsewhere, lockdown protests have been continuing, from the relatively gentle, with 12-year-old schoolgirls in Italy setting up their desk outside empty schools to protest at those schools being closed, all the way through to the riotous, with German police using water cannon to break up rallies of 14,000 protesters in Berlin. One member of the Bundestag said that the government's pandemic bill was the doorway to a health dictatorship. Other forms of dictatorship are less in vogue in Europe. Indeed, Europe is probably facing its next big crisis post-Brexit, or nearly post-Brexit anyway. Hungary and Poland, two of the Eastern European states that have anti-woke strongmen leaderships, have created a major schism in the bloc by vetoing its 1.1 trillion euro budget and a pandemic recovery fund over a clause that makes access to the funding conditional on respecting the rule of law. Poland and Hungary think the rule of law clause is ideological, intended to be able to blackmail countries that oppose migration and which have, shall we say, non-approved policies on LGBT rights and abortion. Poland is due to receive 130 billion euros from the budget, Hungary 41 billion. So they can see some massive leverage bearing down on them to comply with the EU's demands. Germany, the Netherlands, France and the EU Parliament have said that they won't consider passing the budget without that rule of law clause. It was only in the last video I was mentioning the difficulties in Europe with the tension between governance at the EU level and the nation states beneath it. It's the major conflict at the heart of Europe. It caused Brexit, but was not solved by Brexit. Now there are mutterings about radical moves such as restarting the bloc without Hungary and Poland, which feeds into fears from all of the Eastern European countries which benefit significantly for membership, that this could be a point where the wealthier Western members actually decide to force them out and go it alone. Almost certainly not what they want to do, but between Macron's battles against the rise of political Islam and now this, the realities of how politically integrated the bloc can even become if it's made up of constituent parts that are a long way from sharing common values, that's not going to go away. Meanwhile, in the US, life continues as per the new normal, which is to say, not even remotely normal. 
Donald Trump's lawyer, Sidney Powell, and Rudy Giuliani held a press conference alleging the biggest, most significant election fraud in the history of the United States. According to Powell, Rick Software stole about 7 million votes in the election. Now, if true, that would be a nation-defining moment. Calling it the biggest election fraud would not for once be hyperbole. However, for now, the claims remain without evidence. And even Tucker Carlson called the campaign out on his Fox News show, inviting to turn over the whole hour of the show to Powell for her to present her evidence in as much detail as it took. But apparently Powell got angry and told the show to stop asking her. According to Carlson, his contacts in the Trump campaign said that Powell had never given them any evidence of the claims either. And it seems as though the whole show is just slipping further into the realms of the surreal. And even the loyalists now are getting impatient with it. In the meantime, the Democrats have had a Dominic Cummings Barnard Castle moment when California's governor, Gavin Newsom, was caught out attending the top restaurant, the French Laundry, in a large group not wearing masks, not outside, all clearly in contravention with the extremely strict Covid rules that Newsom himself implemented in the state. And I compare it to Dominic Cummings, but that's actually deeply unfair to Dominic Cummings because whatever people thought of what he did, it wasn't frivolous. It was about finding a place to be based where the family could support his son, his child, while he and his wife were sick with Covid-19. If there was one frivolous element, it was because he and his wife drove to Barnard Castle on her birthday and sat on a bench for a few minutes. No risk to others. It would have been a big so what moment if it hadn't been a figure so firmly in the political crosshairs of the mainstream media. But that's not the case with Gavin Newsom. Newsom broke his own rules so that he could have a nice night out at a $400 per head fine dining restaurant with an assembled group that included members of the California Medical Association and various lobbyists. Clearly in a way that he himself would have argued puts people at risk in order to celebrate a lobbyist's birthday. And that, citizens of America, is your political class. Congratulations. Finally, Regular viewers will remember that I looked into some of the background behind the explosion in Beirut several months ago. We now have an interesting piece of modelling work that's been done to map out what materials were placed where in that warehouse and therefore exactly what happened. The researchers took all the different video footage, synchronised it, spatially mapped it out and studied the exact sequence of what coloured smoke came out from where and pieced it all together. It is a fascinating piece of analysis. I've included a link to that in the description below if you want to take a look for yourself. Now, in a moment, we'll reply to a couple of comments and share the final thought of the week. But first, how do you know when a book is hitting one of the modern world's most contentious spots? When it has 114 Google reviews and almost all of them are five stars or one star? The book is Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters by Abigail Schreer. It talks about the growth of transgenderism amongst young girls. And it's a thing. Between 2016 and 2017, the number of females seeking gender surgery quadrupled in the United States. Shreya asked whether this is evidence of some medical phenomenon previously unseen in human medical history, or whether it might instead be something as simple and straightforward as a social craze. 
which, if it were, probably shouldn't rapidly lead to life-changing surgical procedures. It turns out that simply discussing this possibility is hugely controversial. Massively, breathtakingly controversial. A publishing house that had agreed to publish the book had a staff revolt and pulled out. Amazon has a book for sale, but refuses to take adverts promoting the book. Journalists interested in reviewing the book found that journals and websites turned them down flat. When she was interviewed by Joe Rogan, it prompted another fit of protest amongst the staff of Spotify, who wanted the episode to be censored from their platform. Science writer Sean Scott was kicked off the National Association of Science Writers Discussion Forum for simply saying that he hoped the book might be interesting and shed light on an important topic. A GoFundMe campaign to support Shreer was shut down by GoFundMe, as was a second attempt by somebody else. Target pulled the book before reinstalling it after a backlash. One professor encouraged people to burn the book. And an ACLU lawyer said that he would 100% die on the hill of stopping the book being circulated. So when I say it's controversial, we can take that as reasonably solid evidence to support that contention. Still, just because you're controversial doesn't mean you're right. Also doesn't mean you're wrong. It does mean that you're looking at something important that people clearly have strong feelings about. And obviously, that's like catnip to this channel. So next week, I'll be reviewing that book and the issues that it covers, seeing whether there have been any telling critiques of its arguments and giving you my take once I've done all of that. The idea that there are public policy issues affecting the lives of children that you're just not allowed to even talk about, plain wrong. If you think so too, then join me for that video being launched on this channel 7pm UK time on Wednesday the 25th of November. The huge backlash I thought that I might get following the Great Reset video hasn't emerged yet. Although I did have a number saying, well normally Malin I think you do some good videos but in this case you're completely missing all the evil people doing evil things behind the evil door. I noticed that the day after that video went live, top Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro covered The Great Reset as well. His take was broadly the same as mine, interestingly, except, as you might expect, he spent more time attacking radical Democrats, the squad, who leap onto any hook to promote their radical agenda. Plus, Shapiro argued with much more vigour against the idea of stakeholder capitalism, whereas I just noted my disapproval in passing. I had one comment saying, I was hoping you would shine some light on what you think the best approach for mitigating negative externalities would be. If not stakeholder capitalism, then what? That's kind of a whole video in itself, albeit one that probably wouldn't get as many views. But the short answer is this. Remove the legal fiction that a chief executive of a business has a sole legal duty to maximise stakeholder return. It creates perverse incentives to focus on the short term in a way that's neither good for society nor indeed in most cases for the business. Now there's lots of detail and ifs and buts in there, maybe I'll make that video at some point. Then I had another question. Could you share with us a site or a book with relatively easy to follow evidence of man-made climate change? 
Something that has plenty of evidence so that I can show people who are sceptical. I need something that is easier to understand than what's out there. Well, it depends. First, these sceptical people you mentioned, are they actually curious or are they resistant? Are you discussing with them or are you debating? Generally, the latter, people who are bunkered in against climate change arguments, are not that way because they haven't yet been exposed to a good enough fact. Often it's because their peer group are traditionally sceptical or because they look at some of the political excesses of the worst solutions put forward by the other side and they don't distinguish between the policies and the science. In other words, it's about identity, not about facts and argument. I would start by seeking to genuinely understand why they hold the view that they do and in so doing explain why you hold the view that you do. It's a discussion that happens then with mutual respect, seeking understanding of each other. Now look, there are sites and resources out there for people that want to persuade others. The one that was designed specifically to answer questions like yours is probably the Cranky Uncle book and website by John Cook. If you find something on there that works for you, let me know. I'm sceptical generally that that approach works, regardless of how the arguments are framed. But, you know, might well be a conversation starter, if nothing else. I came to a realisation because of the latest series of The Crown. It's been my habit never to watch fictionalised tellings of recent events. Why? Because the power of TV or film is huge. And it seems to me it must be pretty much impossible to prevent the made-up version from influencing your perception of reality. And the writer of The Crown admits he simply invented some pretty important details purely for dramatic effect to the detriment of some of the still living individuals involved. And I don't want my perception of reality and of those individuals to be warped, so I avoid such things. But, and here's the heart of a dilemma, by doing so I deliberately remove myself from understanding a powerful influence on the thinking of wider society because many people are watching those stories and are being influenced by them. At some point the stories and the belief in them become as important as the reality. By not watching them you lose touch with the mindset of the people around you. Now this isn't new. Marie Antoinette was demonised by the similar spread of stories about her that were cynical, usually pornographic and entirely untrue, except that they expressed an important sense of how the relationship between the subject and the monarch in France was shifting. And it was that, not so much the individual stories, that took her ultimately to the guillotine. Now look at Divided America. Yes, partisan media channels mean that Americans are getting their understanding of the world, their stories, from different information streams. But it goes deeper than that. See, what's happening now is that they see the same events with their own eyes, but they tell themselves totally different stories about what it is they've just seen. Politics used to be a disagreement about policy. Increasingly, it's now a disagreement about what constitutes reality. The stories we tell ourselves are becoming as important today as they were when they fueled the re religious crusades in the Middle Ages. It's as though the Enlightenment never happened. That would be bad enough, but now we're moving to the stage where people are taking steps to enforce their vision of reality. For instance, social media companies deleting coronavirus content, some of which is factually accurate, but which goes against the orthodoxy. The ideologues of both sides believe it's a problem that only applies to content from the other side. Now, do we shrug our shoulders 
and accept that we're into a new dark ages and simply dive into the latest conspiracy theory? Or do we fight back on the basis that we are capable of being rational beings? We need more people who can step outside the war between ideologies and instead commit themselves to a war against ideology itself. I suppose that's as good a description of what I want for this channel as anything else I could come up with. And if that's something you support, you could consider joining the good people who already support this channel on Patreon. It's only because of those patrons that I'm able to put as much time in to produce these videos as I am and to decide to go after some of the more interesting and controversial issues, regardless of whether they will be monetized by YouTube. For as little as $5 a month, you can help support the independent, fact-focused and non-ideological content that I aim to produce here. Thanks in advance, and either way, have a great week. My name's Malin Baker. This is The Malin Baker Show. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Malin Baker Podcast for Changemakers. Don't forget to sign up wherever you get your podcasts to get new episodes as they're released every week. 